The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Well, sandwiched between the news is we are, in fact, uh, the Enviro Show here on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richards, together with Kim Winter and Garnet and Quinica, and together with you. And if you'd like to give us a call, you're welcome. The number is 0892 10 2010. And don't forget, you can find us on our Facebook page, which is the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, what we've got in the lineup, an all girl, all woman lineup that we have tonight, we're going to be talking first to Professor Diana Hardy. She's a clinical virologist at the National Health Laboratory Service, also a professor in the Department of Virology at UCT. She's going to be talking to us a little bit about how this deadly Ebola virus actually works and operates, first, in, uh, first identified back in 1976. After that, we're going to be talking to Dr. Knox Makunga. She's with the Department of Botany and Zoology at the Stellenbosch University. She's going to be talking, amongst other things, about plant propagation protocols and plants, threatened plants, and how they are they are managed to... Uh, she is managing to keep them going, amongst other things. She also does flower arranging. Now, there's a thing. After that, we'll be talking to a, a well-known name in gardening circles. She's Jane Griffiths, and she's going to be talking in our forage feature about what you can best grow for yourself rather than going to the supermarket to buy at a great cost. And then we'll be talking to Delani Besedenhout. She's going to be talking about vinyls. She is, in fact, the CEO of South African Vinyls Association. She's going to be trying to um, upgrade the image, the, uh, the environmental creds, if you like, of vinyl PVC. Uh, what is it exactly and uh, how is it to be dealt with? And last but certainly no, no means least, we'll be talking to Joe Maxwell. Uh, Joe Maxwell is a, a Cape Town veteran social welfare activist, I think we can call her, and she's been making sleeping bags out of recycled newspapers. So we'll be finding out exactly why and how she does that. All that is coming up right here on the Enviro Show. Just a little bit of eco-info for you, though. E is for Ebola. I'm going to be talking about that in just a minute. But he's also for earthquake, and as you know, only too well, the 5.5 magnitude quake hit a large part of the country as well as parts of Mozambique and Botswana a couple of days ago. Well, apparently it's not at all uncommon. That's according to structural geologist Herman van Niekerk from the University of Johannesburg. It was, he says, however, the largest in the last decade, the last one being 5.3 uh, back in 2005. Well, he says that aftershocks, possibly even a second quake, are expected. And it seems that it's an indication that the Earth's crust is under stress. One of the causes could be the violent seismic activity that seems to be happening in the Great Rift Valley. Well, I did a quick Google search to try and get to the uh, under, under the skin of the whole situation. And it shows a very complex geological explanation. But what I did learn was that the Earth has four major layers. There's the inner core, the outer core, the mantle and the crust. And the crust on the top of the mantle make up the thin skin on the surface of our planet, which one could see as very, very vulnerable. But let me tell you also that E is for elephant, and coming up this Tuesday, it's World Elephant Day. Well, it's the day when elephant lovers, wildlife lovers across the world do, do take the elephant to heart, as it were. And on this uh, World Elephant Day, the Conservation Action Trust, that's CAT to you and I, and what they're going to be doing to raise awareness is an ivory burn, a mock ivory burn. It's happening in Cape Town at the Eerstastien Resort in Bloberg Nature Reserve. That's just after Big Bay, and that's happening at 2.30. That's on Tuesday, the 12th of August. Think of elephants. And if you'd like to find out more about that uh, mock burn, that mock ivory burn, check their site. It's conservationaction.co.za, conservationaction.co.za. The Enviro Show. Well, first up on the Enviro Show, a word that's on everybody's lips at the moment, it's Ebola. 
And between the 2nd and the 4th of August alone, a total of 108 new cases of the Ebola virus, as well as 45 deaths, were reported from Guinea, Liberia, Nigeria and Sierra Leone. The cumulative number of cases in all four countries stands at one, something like 1,711, that's including 932 deaths. And in Liberia, they've uh, declared a state of emergency with the uh, President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf saying ignorance, poverty, as well as entrenched religious and cultural practices continue to exacerbate the spread of the disease. Well, it's a disease that was first identified in 1976 when it had a 90% fatality rate. Doesn't seem to be looking a whole lot better right now. So how does this deadly virus operate? Well, to tell us a little bit more about the, the background to it, we have on the line Professor Diana Hardy. She's a clinical virologist at the National Health Laboratory Service, also a professor in the Department of Virology at UCT. We've got her on the line. Hi, Professor Hardy. Hello. Nice to have you with us. Can we get a bit of a background on Ebola? It was first identified in 1976. What, how does a virus first get identified? Where did, was it first discovered? Okay, the first outbreak um, occurred in Zaire, the, the, what, is, what we now know as uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and it's named after the, um, uh, a, a river um, in, 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 the, in those parts. The, 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 so that was the very first outbreak in 1976. Previous to that, there had been a related virus, Marburg virus, which is, belongs to the same family, which was identified and caused outbreaks um, in 1967. But um, since the, 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 the Zaire um, um, virus um, has, um, has um, caused sporadic outbreaks um, in Central Africa since that time, the virus is a, um, an, an animal virus. We believe that the species of animal that carries the virus are bats. And, and so humans, uh, periodically, the virus crosses a species barrier and causes disease in, in humans and other, and other animals. And, and, and these crossings are associated with outbreaks of disease in humans. Crosses species barriers biting? No, probably not. Um, the bats are they, they harbor the virus um, asymptomatically, and the virus is present in their blood, and they pass it on to their to other bats uh, in uh, you know of the same species, and it doesn't cause any illness in the bat. But um, the the it, it's thought that probably it's it's through um, getting bat virus blood, um, uh, you know, hunters, it, uh, bats are quite a delicacy in Africa and they are eaten um, and uh, the, the hunters that might catch them um, could, if they got the bat blood into, uh, into cuts and things like that, you could get transmission. That's one of the theories about how the, trans uh, the transmission from animal into, into humans can occur. Gosh, one of the theories. So are we still talking theories after all this time? It seems extraordinary. <laughs> um, so you know, going back to bats, I mean, there are many different species or, or different varieties of bat, I understand. It doesn't mean that every living bat is carrying the Ebola virus. No, no, definitely not. It, it, um, the, the, this, uh, these outbreaks of this, uh, of, uh, have all been confined to central africa for for the most part so so it's particular various species of bats that are in that in the, the, that geographical area sort of stretching from as we now know stretching as far as west africa and 
down through Central Africa, even even as far down as uh, as Angola and Zimbabwe. It's not it's not just humans though. That I mean, it it may be begun with bats, but it's not just bats, and it's not just humans who are uh, who can be affected or infected. Um, monkeys, I'm just looking at here, pigs as well. Yes, yes, no. So so bats are the thought to be the what we call the reservoir. So that's the animal species that harbors the infection and are the sort of the source of the of the virus, and they they harbor the infection asymptomatically, and then. Um, if the virus gets into another species of animal, then that species of animal develops an illness, which is a sort of a, a hemorrhagic fever-like illness. And um, as you say, various different animal species can become infected. Uh, 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 you, you've mentioned quite a few of them. Um, um, you know, the scary thing, however it starts and however it's spread, is one thing. But the scary thing about it is it's, it's unbelievable virulence. I mean, we've all seen the pictures on television mm. of people mm. masked, you know, completely um, uh, completely covered, you know, not a, a trace of skin showing, and yet it just seems to be able to creep in. Is it the only such virus that is so unbelievably um, powerful? Virulent. Um, mm. Well, no, there are a number of other hemorrhagic fever viruses but just to get back to i mean obviously as you mentioned it, the, the the transmission once well uh, once you've got an animal that is has developed the illness and the symptoms those animals become highly infectious their blood and body fluids are highly transmissible to other individuals um uh, animals or, or other humans and as you say to to nurse these patients um one requires quite quite a lot of protective equipment to protect the um, people working, uh, having close contact. How long does the virus last um, if it's not in a host body, if you know what I mean? You were talking about the hunters catching the bats mm. and you know, maybe mm. getting uh, infected one way or another by the, by the blood of the animal. Yes. You know, if a, if a, a carcass is lying for some time, will, will the virus not eventually die? Yes, the virus will die. It, it, it's, it, it's, an, it's an enveloped RNA virus, and those viruses are quite delicate and very susceptible to drying. So you're quite right, a dead animal, um, especially in a warm environment, a warm, moist environment, the, the, that animal, the, the virus is, is not going to survive very, very long. And so this is one of the... And, and also, if that, the, the, that animal is found and cooked... And, and eaten, it's also probably not a risk because the virus is readily, fairly easily inactivated. You'd, you'd need transmission um, uh, for, uh, the, from a living person and, and somebody who hasn't died that long ago. You mentioned that we still sort of seem to be theorising about it. You know, again, it matters perhaps less where it's coming. Well, it does matter where it's coming from because one needs to get back to the source. But um, have there been many eruptions? I mean, back in '76, when there was, it was first the outbreak, there was the first outbreak. How many people died, and how did they manage to contain it and, and quell it then? Mm. Mm. Um, you know, you know, I'm not very good at remembering figures, but I mean, the very first outbreak, I think there were, I mean, I can't remember um, how many, how many people died in that, in that particular outbreak, but certainly in that kind of environment where, when, where infection control is poor, you know, where, when you have a virus of this nature, you usually do get quite a few cases 
of secondary and then tertiary transmissions occurring, especially in in a hospital environment or, or nosocomial environment where especially uh, where in Africa they were sharing needles and things like that. That was just the kind of environment for explosive spread. Um, the thing about this this family of viruses is that they cause such an explosive and 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 rapidly uh, rapidly fatal illness that um and uh, in in where in areas where there are there there may be you may get occasional outbreaks or very small outbreaks and if you're in in unpopular relatively low, low density populated areas and those will just burn themselves out because there won't be uh, the, the the duration of infectivity, in a sense, because the people don't survive very long. Um, you don't tend to get these long sustained outbreaks like what we're seeing now. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the reason that this is happening now is because the first the uh, the first couple of cases were not picked up early, and uh, and 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 the, it was in a sufficiently densely populated area, in a sense. Um, there were enough people um, so that, second, that, that um, secondary cases could occur, and it, it got to a point where it becomes much more difficult to contain. Yeah. The virus itself does it mutate? Does it has it got worse? Um, it's an RNA virus, so very like it, it will have the. It certainly has that the, the, that um, capacity to. To mutate, but I do not think that that has been that, that any ad- additional virulence has been attributed to its its mutation. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there are in the different outbreaks that have occurred sporadically over the years. There have been different mortality rates associated with with those, those outbreaks. The very first outbreak, as you mentioned, 1976. That had a mortality rate of ninety percent, whereas this current outbreak, it looks like the mortality rates are around about fifty percent. Um, so, so, and 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 it has certainly been shown in in the, the different outbreaks there have been some variation in the degree of virulence. I mean, fifty percent still blow, pretty yeah. virulent if you ask me. But yeah. um, but there does seem to have been some variation, and it may have been due to the route of transmission because in that. Initial 1976 outbreak, and now many of the cases were nosocomial as a result of in in, in the hospital setting, uh, people being infected um, by reuse of needles, and that, mm-hmm. and that may, have, may have been the route of transmission, the sort of inoculum, the dose that you get, that is associated with increased virulence. Yeah, gosh. Just lastly, is there a chance that we could one day see that this will never happen again? Is it inoculation? Is there any way? forward that we will wipe mm. Ebola out? Mm. No, well, there's, there, there, it's, it's be, there's been a lot of interest in, de- uh, in um, developing not only vaccines, but also therapeutic agents. Um, and there, there are a number of, um, of, of candidate vaccines and, um, and, and, and medica- drugs and monoclonal antibodies in the, that have... Uh, where we exp- there, there's experimental data in animals on on efficacy, and so and I think that this particular outbreak is going to spur um, scientists on because it is quite clear that in certain situations that this can be 
become a very significant regional threat um, and that it is that, that, that it would makes great sense to have therapeutics available to, yes. to treat these people and also protect the the, the people who are coming in and you know the, all the the, the um, personnel that are, are, yeah, are coming yeah. in. Oh, it's, it's, it's really, I think it's already a significant regional threat. Sure. Um, Professor Hardy, thank you very much for joining us. It's a, it's a very scary thing in this day and age, but hopefully, as you say, the scientists are onto it and uh, hopefully there'll be fewer lives lost in the future. Thank you for your time. No, Take care. Thank you. Great pleasure. Professor Diana Hardy, she's with the Department of Virology at the University of Cape Town talking about Ebola there. Well, in a minute, we're going to move on to lighter things. We're going to move on to plants and the growing thereof. So stay with us. Every weekend, SAFM brings you the people at the centre of the stories. We give you a clear perspective on national and international events. Find out how on Weekend AM Live from 6 every Saturday and Sunday morning. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show here on SAFM. Well, we're moving on to things that are slightly lighter, um, very slightly lighter. Well, very much slightly, much, much lighter, in fact. In a minute, we're going to be talking about gardening and foraging in your very own backyard. But first, we have with us in the studio Dr. Knox Makunga. She's from the Department of Botany, Botany and Zoology. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Botany and Zoology at the University of Stellenbosch. Nonetheless, she's come all the way through to be with us in the studio, which is wonderful. Hi, Knox. Thank you very much for coming in. Well, Knox is a botanist. Um, she's concerned herself with plants, with their growth, with the prop propagation protocol, specifically for plants that are under threat. But she's also a flower ranger, so I've just discovered, and um, does all sorts of things with plants. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, Knox? How have you got into this and why? Um, I actually come from a family that's really interested in nature, and my dad was a botanist. So I suppose the, the apple genes. does not fall too far from the tree. Um, and um, and grew up in um, Fort Hare, um, the first eight, nine years of my life. And um, spent some time with my father, actually, um, in the laboratories. And so I think in some ways it really sparked it off. And my mom's always been into plants and totally loves her garden um, and flowers, of course. So I think um, the botany bug really bit well it's certainly you know it makes you when you hear stories like that you think parents have got such a responsibility in developing their child's career one way or another but it was, it's a wonderful career that you've chosen so very good news all around and congratulations to your parents but botany it's a huge subject in fact you're with the department yes, of botany and zoology i mean this is vast have you have you narrowed down your interest area um absolutely i'm more interested in medicinal plants and other useful plants that are useful in um, building economies and uh, working with people that have actually worked with plants for a really long time who understand them from a different perspective in terms of my academic background. Okay, so we're looking at plants that are not just, oh, isn't that nice? We're looking at um, plants that build economies. Give us some examples. Well, I'm thinking about medicinal plants. Um, um, a good example, I suppose, would be rooibos, which mm. happens to be indigenous and actually endemic to the cedarberg, and a plant that's been utilized for many generations 
um, and has a very strong culture as a medicinal herb as well as a um, a healthy tea. And I would say that this is South Africa's biggest export in terms of uh, medicinal and um, herbal teas, I suppose. Um, rooibos is drunk in many areas of the world and um, generates a livelihood for a lot of people. Um, so there are communities that are actually reliant on yeah. the money that is yeah. generated by, by rooibos. But is it threatened? Um, I wouldn't say rooibos is threatened per se, but um, I do work on some other plants that are threatened. Um, and these would be plants that, um, again, have been utilized for, for generations in terms of um, medicinal health. Um, and Like what? Um, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to think of a few now. And one that comes to mind is actually Pelagonium sedoides. Um, which is uh, found in the Eastern Cape, actually around the area that I grew up in. And um, for a long time, we were really worried about this particular species because it was being harvested around um, areas such as Grahamstown and Fort Beaufort and Alice. And it contains a set of um, cormorants, which are... Uh, effective against respiratory disorders and the extract that's synthesized from pelagonium is included in many different um, preparations um, including lintagon for instance and the harvesting of this particular species um, got very concerning because the levels of plants in the wild were really uh, degenerating and so we developed a strategy to be able to grow it in a tissue culture system, which would then allow for us to maintain that germplasm. But at the same time, um, in a case where the threat was becoming even more, we would then be able to utilize that material, um, providing it to farmers and then reducing the reliance on wild harvesting. Instance. Why is it reducing in numbers so much? Is it as a result of human development or is it as a result of climate change? It's or a is combination. It? Okay. Or there isn't a bug that's eating it? Or? No, not at all. Um, it's a combination of factors. So one of them is the demand. Um, it's become pretty popular um, locally as well as internationally. It's always been a popular extract in Germany. Um, and I think this has escalated um, in terms of the demand. You've got Pelagonium sudoides extracts that are now being sold in the US, New Zealand, Australia, so we should be South America. It. Absolutely. I think we should be farming it and concentrating on, on doing that. And for a little bit, we were um, extracting from the wild and, um, and the communities where these plants are actually found uh, realize that they can actually generate a livelihood from this. Um, so would then extract and provide this to um, the phytopharmaceutical companies who manufacture the extract. When you say it's, it's been taken from the wild, is it like, is it, um, is it, um, what's that, what's that one? I'll come back to that. But is it one that can be farmed or is it one that only... Uh, 
yes, only it, thrives in yes, the wild. No, I think it can be farmed. Um, part Buckle, of the Buckle pa- is the one I'm thinking of. Oh yes. yes. Um, part of the problem with pelargonium has been the fact that it's the tuber uh, or the rhizome that's actually um, utilized to make the extract, and obviously when you take out the underground parts. Um, you basically kill the whole entire plant. Um, so suggestions have been to perhaps maybe utilize the leaves um, because they do have a similar chemistry, but the concentration of these chemicals is obviously not as much as in the in the underground parts. Um, so farming and cultivation is very important, and people are starting to cultivate it actually um so i think we are aware that the threat was there and um you know in our in our environment to try and lessen the threat we obviously developed this pr- propagation system an in vitro propagation system to to assist um with conservation as well as with commercialization. You're producing little test tube pelargonium babies. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> that's what we do. Does it, does it work quickly? Is it a very long involved process? Um, well, the tissue culture, um, we needed firstly to um, find a protocol to be able to get the tissue cultures nice and clean and then find the right combination of um, plant growth regulators to assist with um, production of the little tissue culture babies and um, so that's what my research was involved involving and um, I think we were quite successful and um, we even had some clients who were actually um, obtaining the plants from us. So would you be becoming, yes, that's what I was going to say really, are you then becoming like the nurseryman? Are you going to be producing hundreds and thousands of these things to supply people or will you be producing the mother plants, if you like, which can then people then can then use to grow well, from there? Well, um, in, in my head, I sort of have this vision that um, perhaps this could be a strategy that could actually assist in um, sort of rural development. So where um, you have, um, say, a tissue culture laboratory that gets set up in some of the areas where these plants come from and the local people get engaged in actually cultivating hmm. and um, and maintaining this uh, germplasm. Also, um, it's a great system to be able to develop because you can also utilize it um, as a factory so um, altering conditions and using it as a system to actually study how plants respond to stress for instance you've clearly so got a far a bigger vision than just propagating a, a few pieces of a plant material if anybody would like to know more it sounds like it's part of a, a big much bigger plan yep absolutely can people find more on your website or on the Stellenbosch University website? yes of course and um, I'm also available on email What's your email address? Um, makunga at sun.ac.za That's makunga at sun.ac.za Let me give that. Is that all right? If yes, people can sure. contact you. Lovely. Doctor, and we haven't even talked about your flower arranging. Do you do that as a sort of stress release? Um, I, I have a creative side, so I do that um, as a way to, um, to express my creativity. 
Sounds like you have got a good balance. Lovely. Thank you very much, Dr. Knox Mykonga. And if you'd like to get, to get in touch and find out a little bit more about the work that she's doing, the protocol of uh, propagating threatened species, pop her a mail. It's Mykonga, that's M-A-K-H-U-N-G-A, at sun.ac.za. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're listening to SAFM, you're listening to the Enviro Show here on SAFM. And, uh, well, we're going to stay with plants, we're going to stay with green material, because what we're going to do next is, as you know, we usually have a forage feature where we look at uh, who's farming what and how they're growing what. Well, we thought we'd look again at how to forage in your own backyard. You might remember we spoke the other day about growing stacks, those interlinking pots to create your own mini urban farm. Well, today we're looking at a woman who we could call that she's a queen of the gardeners, in fact. She's Jane Griffiths. She's written a number of books amongst some Jane's Delicious Garden, and we have her on the line to tell us more. Hi, Jane. Hello, Nancy. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Nice to be chatting to you once again. Jane, queen of the gardeners, I say. But we're talking about sort of gardening, farming gardening, you know, growing things in your own backyard. And we're all being urged all the time to grow things ourselves. But, you know, you can go to the supermarket and you buy things for, you know, a fraction of the price and the time and energy that it's going to take you to grow things. In your view, what are the best things to be growing in your garden that, that are worthwhile? Well, exactly. It's a very valid point because if you are going to take the time and trouble to to start up an urban farm, as it were, or start growing your own vegetables, uh, there's no point in going and buying something that you can get, you know, like a, a, a white cauliflower when you can actually get something like a, an orange one or a purple one. And um, there's a lot of different advantages to growing vegetables from seeds. Because, number one, there's a much, much wider variety out there um, when you start sowing from seed. And if you're going to go to that trouble, rather choose something that is a little bit different. Uh, it's got that wow factor. And also you can choose vegetables then that bring a completely different taste. And I'm talking about heirloom seeds. And these are seeds that have been passed down from generation to generation. And they've actually been, um, they, they don't have the same qualities as commercial seeds. Commercial seeds, they, they're chosen because they're tough and hardy and they can survive the rigors of a market, as it were. Many of these seeds, you can only grow them in your home gardens because they're very fragile. The fruit itself won't, won't survive in a market environment. So they're perfect for home growers. When you say heirloom seeds, I don't know if you were listening to us talking to Docs Makunga, uh, Knox Makunga, uh, she was talking about um, propagating in vitro uh, little bits of, of uh, Pelagonium sedoides, I think, because it's threatened. Now, heirloom seeds, are the seeds themselves very old or has somebody been looking after these rare species and harvesting the seeds from them? Exactly. You know, seeds have to be, to be able to keep them alive, you have to keep on growing them and harvesting the seeds and growing them. And there are people that have done these, done this for generations and there are wonderful stories about these seeds where when they've been threatened, for example, in war zones, which, which can often threaten a growing environment, these seeds get smuggled across borders, sewn into people's jackets. And there are people all over the world who are passionate about saving our seeds, especially under the threat of GMOs and the threat, especially under the threat of uh, mass commercialization of, of seeds and seed growing. So 
that's another advantage of growing and saving your own seeds at home is that you're actually adding to the the gene pool of seeds. You're keeping that gene alive. And what I've found just in my own garden when I've started saving seeds is that the next time I sow that seed and something else grows and then the following season, the, the plant actually changes. It adapts to my environment and it starts changing and subtly changing. But the seed, the, the vegetable that grows out will be ever so slightly different, but it'll, it'll adapt better to your environment. So it'll, it'll grow better and produce better. And, um, you know, there are lots also apart from, from, from the health side of, of of growing the vegetables, you know, we eat with our eyes a lot. We we look at things and we go, oh wow, and and you encourage to eat because of something looking good. And you, the, when you start sowing from seeds and these heirloom seeds, you can you can get such a wide variety. I mean, things like purple broccoli and uh, tomatoes. They're these incredible yellow tomatoes or striped green and almost black tomatoes. And they're tomatoes that are so dark red that they, they are almost black and they taste absolutely delicious, completely different to anything you will ever buy in the shop. Gosh, orange cauliflower, purple broccoli, yellow tomatoes. <laughs> rainbow. Yes, it is, absolutely. You sound like a painter. Um, so where can one, two, two questions, where can one get these heirloom seeds, seeds and how do you save your own seeds? Let's start with a, how do you save your seeds from, say you've grown a cauliflower, whatever colour it may be, or a broccoli. How do you save the seeds? Well, the first thing is to let it go to seed. Every single vegetable, well, not every single one, but they're different seed, different techniques for saving different seeds. And they're also different plants. You have to be careful, certain Certain, certain seeds, certain plants um, cross-pollinate with each other. So you have to find out which ones, chilies, for example, will cross-pollinate very, very quickly. So if you've got a, a, a very um, mild white Hungarian wax chili on, in one bed and a very, very hot habanero, and you don't keep them separate, they will get cross-pollinated, and the next year you'll either have a mild jalapeno or habanero, or you're going to have a very hot Hungarian wax. It won't. They will cross-pollinate, and they will start mixing and matching. So you have to be careful about that. Apartheid in the garden. Oh yes, you have to keep that up. <laughs> if you want to keep those the, the the genes pure, if you if you want them to mix and match, and you want to experiment, then you can let them cross, and you can come up with all sorts of combinations and experiments. That's how people have been breeding plants for years i mean it's very interesting if you if you think that we so used to orange carrots carrots originally weren't orange dutch plant breeders actually bred carrots to be orange they crossed purple carrots and white carrots and and yellow carrots together until they came up with an orange carrot because of course the dutch being orange their royal family was the house of orange and they is did that in tribute to their royal family. Is that, today their, we have is that the, their national vegetable? And we have the ubiquitous orange carrot now as a result. Um, so saving seeds, some of the ones that are easiest to save are things like beans, for example. You just leave your beans, uh, especially, you know, you leave the beans on the bush to dry out. And, um, and then you pick the, the pods and you break the seeds out and those you sow the next year. Uh, there are other ones that are better if you actually leave them to get almost overripe. Tomatoes are one. They prefer to be very almost overripe. And um, then you let that, that almost go, go rotten. 
and um, and then you say, let the seeds dry out from that. It's often easier you just put them onto paper towel and and you let that all dry out, and then it lets, you get left with a little bit of the tomato flesh and the seeds as well, and you just sow all sow those the next year when when it's time to sow. So you have to store them. So I mean, you wouldn't put them in the fridge, which you put them in a dry condition somewhere. What sort of conditions do they need? And do you put them in a paper? Paper pack, a foil pack? Or? The main word that you said there is dry. It, they mm. have to be kept dry. They can be kept in the fridge, but they must be kept in an airtight container in the fridge. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The freezer is also a very good idea, as long as you keep them dry. You know those, the little packets that you get when you, if you're buying um, the, the desiccation, the little desiccation bags? Um, if you pop one of those in there, that helps keep them dry. Um, but moisture is the killer. So you really don't want to, and and if you're not keeping them in the in the fridge or the freezer, keep them in paper envelopes. You can buy those little small brown paper mm. envelopes. Those are the best ones for seeds, rather than plastic bags. They tend to sweat in plastic bags if they're not perfectly dry. And can you keep them indefinitely, or is it next season? It's now. It's time. Again, different seeds have got um, different lifespans. Um, there are certain ones like angelica, which is a herb seed, which literally only lasts about oh, six months, and then it's, it's not viable anymore. And then you've got other ones that last for ages. You know, chili seeds can last for quite a long time. They can last for four or five years. Um, uh, again, it depends. They don't like heat either. Keep them out of the heat. So it, it depends on how, how well you've stored your seeds. Well, you've certainly whetted the appetite. I can't wait to have an orange cauliflower. Oh. <laughs> what the, do you think? You know, cauliflower cheese, you know, cheddar, yes. you don't, don't even need the yes. cheese. And, and, and a Dutch carrot. I can't, can't get over that story. <laughs> so heirloom seeds, is there a source? Do you sell them or do you, or do you know where one can buy them? Is you can get them. The, the great thing um, with the whole increase of interest in people growing their own vegetables is that there has been a concurrent increase in suppliers, which is fabulous. Um, there are a number of websites. Um, you can uh, a lot of them are listed on my website, um, Jane's Delicious Garden. If you go to, there's a, a click on the thing that says there are things I like, and there's there's a whole lot of seed companies there. Um, Sought After Seedlings is uh, a fabulous company. They actually bring heirloom seeds in from Ameri- uh, from Italy. Uh, these are Italian seeds that have been grown and grown up by the Frankie Cementi family for well over 100 years and a wide range of fabulously interesting seeds and with a very good germination rate. Then there's a um, locally grown living seeds, which is um, they're a farm. It's a family that um, they homeschool and they grow, they, they grow all their seeds, most of their seeds on their farm. And it's a business that has literally grown from him wanting to save, Sean wanting to save a few seeds, to now being a thriving business. Well, Jane, don't don't, don't tell you any more. What I'm going to, I think, living seeds sounds absolutely wonderful. It sounds like um, I'm not quite sure. It sounds quite religious, doesn't it? Living <laughs> seeds. Um, so what I can suggest is people either Google sought after seedlings or living seeds, which is a local organisation, or have a look at your website, Jane, which is Jane's Delicious Garden. Dot .com or .co.za? Dot .co.za dot 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 also goes through to it, but it's okay. a dot .com. Fabulous. How perfectly fascinating, as always. Jane Griffiths, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you and, so uh, much, I'm Nancy. sure we'll speak again. Oh, Take care. Bye. Thanks a lot. Jane Griffiths, who is nothing if not infinitely knowledgeable on the issue of anything that grows in a garden. So if you'd like to check out her website, janesdeliciousgarden.com, janesdeliciousgarden.com. The Enviro Show. 
Well, definitely moving from uh, things not so much below the ground and above the ground and the things that you can eat so much as something that you definitely can't eat, vinyl. What do you think when you think of vinyl? Do you think of uh, old-fashioned records, LPs, billboards, harmful plastic? Well, to explain to us exactly what vinyl is, or PVC, polyvinyl chloride, uh, exactly what it is and how they're looking to upgrade its image through their product stewardship programme is Delani Besadenhout. She's the CEO of uh, SA Vinyls Association. And we got her on the line. Hi, Delani. Hi, how are you, Nan? Excellent, excellent. I've got, my, I've got my head full of uh, orange cauliflower at the moment, so I'm just trying, trying to sort of rethink vinyl. I was saying there, people think of old LPs, that, that sort of thing, billboards. What is vinyl exactly and what is it made of? Sure, uh, Nancy, vinyl is probably your most versatile type of, of polymer or plastic um, that we have around. And it's right, we, we think about vinyl records, um, but it goes as far um, as construction, you know, PVC pipe and guttering, um, and then to a whole other spectrum in, in healthcare applications, an oxygen mask, for instance, um, gum boots, school shoes, um, cable. It, it truly is a, an absolutely versatile uh, product, it's, rigid it's, and flexible. It's, it's versatile, it's useful, it's, it's been developed over the years, but it's also pretty much indestructible. I imagine it takes a very long time to break down. So consequently, I, it possibly it's got a bit of a bad rap from, from the point of view of recycling, but you're looking to do something about that. Um, Nancy, yes, uh, PVC is found mostly in, in long-term applications, so there's a reason why they are uh, virtually indestructible, um, but they're also fully recyclable. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and but, uh, you know, we recognised when it was first developed, issues such as recyclability and the responsible use of additives were not that important. Mm -hmm. um, however, during recent years, uh, vinyl has successfully reinvented itself um, in order to address those historical environmental concerns of PVC. Um, and SAVA is, is one of a few... Um, uh, you know, uh, so industry associations across the globe um, that really try and get our industry to take responsibility for their product, um, uh, you know, to, to be good stewards of the environment. Um, and that is part of our product stewardship program. So once you've sold a, a, a piece of vinyl in whatever shape or form it may be, mm. it then goes on to a secondary person, whether it's a building contractor or somebody in the medical industry or, or mm. whatever, mm. and then it goes on to the consumer and then it's kind of their problem. So in what way are you taking stewardship of the product back? How, how do you take it back at the end of this chain? Um, the, there's quite a few... Um dedicated PVC recyclers or vinyl recyclers in South Africa. Um, and uh, and they have got quite a network of um, of ways to get those waste streams back um, uh, into their plants uh, to recycle. You know, uh, we all realize that, that um, polymers is, is just too valuable to waste. Um, and um, everyone is trying to reuse it and keep that polymer in the system for, for as long as possible. I think where vinyl differs from something like a packaging product, uh, and we're looking at a very successful model from Petco, um, recycling our, our cool drink and water bottles, is, is those are short-term applications. And, and really, you know, you, you buy a bottle of water, you drink it, and, and it goes back into the recycling stream. And it's quite an easy product to collect. Vinyl, because of its long-term applications, 
requires a bit more thinking around uh, take-back schemes and around collection infrastructure. So, give us some examples of uh, of some of the projects, ways in which it's being, and, and you know, perhaps if people have got vinyl, they're thinking, what can I do with it? They can make a plan. Um, yes, so uh, we we are working with the the Global PVC Medical Alliance uh, to do a pilot project where we will be recycling um, vinyl in healthcare uh, in the healthcare environment. You know, vinyl that's not that's not uh, classified as a healthcare risk waste. So that's just one. Then we've got wonderful projects uh, running across the country where all of the vinyl billboards and uh, banners that we know and, and see uh, on our roadways are taken into community programs and they are making such stunning products from them, from conference bags to wallets uh, to, um, you know, covering uh, mattresses in, 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 um, in the creches. And, uh, and that is a really uh, quite a successful pro- project, um, although still on a small scale. And then, um, just for instance, in the, the mining environment, uh, where you have gumboots, um, the, typically a miner would use the gumboots for about two weeks, and there is a closed loop system that, uh, whereby before he gets a new pair of gumboots, he has to hand it in his old pair, and that goes directly for, for recycling. So it's really a matter of one mm. in and one out. You know, in a minute, um, uh, Delaney, we're going to be talking to a lady who's making sleeping bags that she fills with uh, recycled newspaper. And I'm just thinking of those billboards and banners. Could those be used to make sleeping bags that then get filled with? I mean, it, 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 you know, I'm just sort of trying to think, uh, trying to think what else could happen to them here. Could they be used as? Could that material be used as a base product? You know what, I actually came across a very interesting project um, yesterday uh, where I think the project is called Street Sleepers. Um, And what they do is they actually make um, sleeping bags for homeless people um, from old billboards. And... uh, so, yeah, I, I think it is de- definitely an opportunity. Uh, you're looking at something that would waterproof, uh, that would be a good insulator. Um, so quite possible, yeah, definitely. Okay, perhaps I couldn't put Joe Maxwell in touch with you then. Maybe that, she can... That would be, that be wonderful. Okay, well, at, that point, let, at this point, let me give out your website. If anybody would lo- like to know a little bit more, uh, as a source, presumably, of vinyl that has got a second chance in life, can they contact you? Your website is... Uh, savinyls.co.za is that the best way yes that's correct excellent well thank you very much and keep up the good work and long may vinyl last in whatever form it may be thanks very much absolutely great thank you nancy thanks a lot okay then keep well delani she's the ceo of sa vinyls association well if you would like to know a little bit more do check it out though the site is sa vinyls f uh v i n Sorry, S-A-V-I-N-Y-L-S dot C-O dot Z-A, S-A-Vinyls dot C-O dot Z-A. But in a minute, Joe Maxwell and her sleeping bags. Just when you think you missed that one conversation in that one show? No, you didn't. Catch it once again on overnight, 12 midnight to 4 a.m. Here with me, Nayel Pondor, SFM. South Africa's news and information leader. The Enviro Show. 
the Enviro Show it is, where we are busy networking between sleeping bags and vinyl <coughs> and uh, all sorts of things. But who we have in the studio right now, I've been calling her um, a social activist um, because <laughs> certainly she's been doing a whole lot of things to help people who are badly in need one way or another. Over many, many years, she's Jo Maxwell. Hi, Jo, nice to have you Hello, with us. Hello, Nancy. And Jo has been keeping a lot of people dry and, and helping them to sleep better because she's been producing for some time now sleeping bags that are called... Uh, God bless and sleep tight. Is that good night and God bless. Good, good night and God bless. I knew it was something like that. Good night and God bless sleeping bags, which, as I understand, are are made or filled with recycled newspaper. What is your base material? Just explain to us what they look like and how they work. Right, Nancy. They they they're, the plastic is a recycled bag, and it's one meter by one point eight. A recycled. Bag. It's a recycled plastic bag. Mm. And then we there's a formula to laying down the newspaper. And it's taken me nine years to... It, it's evolved over the years. And it's taken me nearly nine years to realise I don't have to do it in bits and pieces. I can just take ten sheets at a time and layer them. I can't believe that it's taken me so long to... to because what we used to do was to layer four, four sheets and four sheets in, in an order and then uh, finish off with two sheets to give us the ten sheets. And I think it was last year I was I was teaching the teachers at Herschel School, and I said, "Listen, I have to. I've just thought about this. Can you, can I experiment on you? Let's just take ten sheets and see how it works." Perfectly. And it worked like a dream. I'm just trying to get my head around how these look. I should have asked you to bring one in. So I, I nearly did, Nancy. I'm sorry, but I didn't. Matter. So the the bag, this one point eight. Yes. So you layer bag. on. What sort of bag is that? It's not a black plastic. No, bag, no, no, no. It? It's they're specially made by by a, a, a company in Killarney Gardens called Trade Core. They're made for me for for the project specially because it's a special run. Is it made out of some sort of recycled? It is material? recycled plastic. Okay. Yes. And then, then we lay ten, the ten sheets of newspaper on, on either side, and then like a sleeping, uh, like a, a duvet. Once you've you've tidied up the newspapers, you just slide the second bag over it, and you've made yourself a a waterproof sleeping bag. How how do you? Um, and then you fold it up. How do you close up the edges? We just fold it over with sort of like a little a little tuck and we anchor it down with, with buff tape. That's the only thing that's not recycled yeah. is the buff tape. I suppose I'm thinking of all the sort of soggy, nasty, wet newspaper that I've seen, you know, floating around because the rain has just been awful here in Cape Town. I keep mm. thinking about you and your sleeping bags and these poor kids or people who are sleeping outside and I think, you you're going to need more than a recycled newspaper sleeping bag but nonetheless how durable are they i mean are they can they get wet or damp or how well it's plastic so it's the water will run off it um you know it's originally i started the original tension was for the homeless people mm. it's gone further than that it's gone to the townships it's i think i would say probably good 80 percent maybe even higher, go into the townships, into the shacks. And when I'm doing a demo, we say to people, we call it a sleeping bag, but it doesn't, it's been turned into raincoats. A couple of years ago, when they had that terrible xenophobia problem in... 2008. Sort of, and they turned them into raincoats. Let's cut a hole in there. The guys were standing outside the Home Affairs office and it was freezing cold. Have you got a production line going then? I mean, how you, many are you producing? Oh... I tried to work out the other day how many we've done over the nine years, and we must be close to 80,000. 
It's very difficult. You know, it comes with an instruction about there's a warning on, 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 on inside the bag. You know, just sort of say, keep away from flames, fire, it's not a toy. It's not, you know, don't let your children, once you've used it, roll it up and put it aside. It's also, um, lost my train of thought there. Well, whilst you're thinking, where does the newspaper come from? Is it, is it we second-hand collect. newspapers? It's second-hand newspapers, all... Clean newspaper? It's all clean uh, newspaper. Um, sometimes the... the, the um, Newspaper people will, will give us clean, brand, brand, brand new. new, which is much easier to work with. But mm. we take what we get. I suppose I'm thinking also of the Argus, which has gone tabloid size. Is it, well, do you use the big sheets or the small sheets? Well, what? it's so adaptable because very often I'm doing a dem, you know, we might have more uh, uh, um, tabloid size than we'd have broadsheet. It's adaptable. You can do one side of it. It doesn't matter. So it's when you say thing. if you're doing a dem, does that mean that you're uh, teaching other people how I, to make them? Yes, so I just demonstrate. They make, and then they, what they've learned, they take off to their own communities, whether it's churches or schools. or I mean, it's just gone everywhere. What's the net price of a per unit? It works out with my new price is about 8 rand 50 a sleeping bag. And... In that eight round fifty, you're keeping a whole lot of newspaper off the streets, out of the land. Even newspaper off the streets, and um, and how much does it cost per per bag that you're having made for you in Kalani Gardens? That'll be the eight round fifty. Yeah, so that's the cost. So that's yeah. the cost of it, less than a loaf of bread. Yeah, it's you're, you know what, Nancy. It started off when I was, I was saw these children. I was at Berkeley Square one evening for an induction of, of a ro- new Rota Act president and I saw these little kids all sleeping you know around Barclays Square there all the um, all those uh, flats are now turned have been turned into offices and I went out sort of doing because Maria's is quite noisy so I went out in, into the square and sort of wandered around and there were all these little kids wrapped up in these skinny little blankets and I just thought to myself this is nonsense that's where it started found out, unfortunately, I was targeting the wrong market. Homeless people, yes, they go to the shelters to collect them. They go to carpenter shop who stock them as well. Um, they're kept by various organisations and people know about them. They come and collect them. Is there a copyright on them? I mean, could these could be marketed. To, I mean, if, if we're not out to make money here so much as keep people warm and dry and keep newspapers off. Some lawyers said to me at what, a few months ago you should you should copyright and I said you can't copyright something that's meant for for the community but he says what if people sell it I said so let them sell if somebody's stupid enough to pay for them which in fact one should actually put a nominal fee like 50 cents or something because then it's got some value but I, I you know we give them away for free and rightly so and they certainly do have value now once again they're called Good, good, good night and God bless. Good night and God bless. It wasn't my name for it. Some guy came up with an item. Lovely. Let's just good use it. Good night and God so, bless. Yes. Well, if anybody would like to, A, get hold of one, B, learn how to make them, um, you're here in Cape Town, but it, uh, website, phone number, what's the best way of getting hold of you? I think the best is always to email me. Okay. And your email is? jmaxwell yeah. at iafrica.com. J Maxwell at iafrica.com. Mm. Have you slept in one? 
I have. And is it cosy? Well, I was on a mattress, so it was cosy. <laughs> that could be cheating. It could be. Very uh, well, of course, it's cheating. Yes, yes, but I mean, yes. I, I had to. I was just that. So, I was so cold, I could not get warm. So I thought, you know what, you 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 passing these things around to everybody but you've never tried it walk the talk put it to the test absolutely joe maxwell thank you very much and uh, keep up the very good work Eighty thousand. i'm sure there are many more to come where that came from good night and god bless is the name of those sleeping bags made out of newspaper and i will give you the details of uh jelani besadenhout of sa vinyls and maybe he can supply some billboards or whatever yes thank you lovely joe maxwell thank you very much that's it for uh, the enviro show thanks very much for the team that's kim winter and garnet in quinica and i'm nancy richards and if you want to get hold of us pop us a mail we're at enviro at safm.co.za or find us uh, on facebook send us a message it's the enviro show on safm well hopefully not sleeping but uh, certainly keeping warm and cozy up in johannesburg is stephen kirker who's going to deliver the news and lots of music hi stephen yes it's actually quite warm up here thank you very much nancy inspirational stuff as uh, always uh, particularly this evening in uh, the enviro show back again next week between nine and ten on a thursday evening yep you until midnight uh, there is some heavy rain forecast in parts of the country the end of winter perhaps and uh, keeping it dry and warm, hopefully. Anyway, before we get into the nighttime music, it is news time.